just want to welcome Ray and Sue again among us. Ray and Sue have had close connections with this community for 24, like 24 years and operating apostolic capacity towards us. They have been there through some really challenging times for us, but stood with us and seen us through until we are at this point today, which is just enjoying the blessing of God. Yeah. And so we welcome them both. But Ray is now going to bring the word, mm. or several. Yeah, okay. Mm. I have never promised Alan that I will be brief. Okay, I just want to say that. And if you need your sandwich lunch before I finish, feel free. It's the privilege to be here with you again. I mean that, you know that. Love coming here. And uh, love to see what God has done here over the years. We were reminiscing a little bit last night, Alan and I, and we... I can remember walking many times through some unmentionable smelly stuff as we looked at buildings in Durham. How many? I don't know how many we looked at over the years. But when we, when I think I was the first person to see this building, and Alan wasn't sure, were you? And I said, wow, there's nothing here. That's good. And look at it. It's magnificent. And now you're over the road, so... It's a, it's a great place to be. Um, I want, um, I'm going to read a passage of scripture to you. Um, at, the, uh, at our home base in uh, Tunbridge, where Sue and I are at the moment, it's a church plant. Um, they're working their way. We're working our way through Acts of the Apostles. So I was asked to speak on the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. And I'm going to uh, go there again with you this morning. Unashamedly, I, re- I like Tom Wright's uh, translation of the New Testament, so I'm going to read it to you. You can follow in yours if you like. So, meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out threats and murder on the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and requested from him officials, official letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that he could find people who belonged to the way, men and women alike, tie them up and bring them back to Jerusalem. While he was on the journey and getting near to Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice speaking to him. Saul, Saul, said the voice, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord, he asked. I am Jesus, he said, and you are persecuting me. But get up and go into the city and it will be told you what you have to do. The men who were travelling with Saul stood speechless. They heard the voice but couldn't see anybody. Saul got up from the ground but when he opened his eyes he couldn't see anything. So they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. He went for three days, being unable to see. He neither ate nor drank. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord spoke to him. Ananias, he said, Here I am, Lord, he replied. Get up, said the Lord to him, and go to the street called Straight. Inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul. Look, he's praying. 
And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming and laying his hands on him so that he could see again. Well, Lord, replied Ananias, you can't be serious. That's my end. John McEnroe would have said that. You can't be serious. I've heard about this man from several people. All about how he's done wicked things to your holy people in Jerusalem. And how he's come here with authority from the chief priest to tie up everybody who calls on your name. Just go, replied the Lord. Here's a chosen vessel for me to carry my name before nations and kings and the children of Israel too. I'm going to show him how many things he's going to have to suffer for the sake of my name. And I go, I'm going to just repeat that because I think we can miss that. I am going to show him how many things he is going to suffer for my name. Saul stayed with the, Damasc- with the disciples in Damascus for a few days. At once, Sorry, beg your pardon. Um, verse 17. So Ananias set off and went into the house and laid his hands on Saul. Brother Saul, he said, the Lord has sent me. Yes, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here so that you may be able to see again and receive the Holy Spirit. At once something like scales fell off his eyes and he was able to see. He got up and was baptised. He had something to eat and regained his strength. Let's just pray. Father, we love the work you do. And what we love about it, Lord, is you keep doing it. (laughs) You keep doing it. Day in, day out, you're doing it. This work of salvation which you love, and you love it so much, Lord, that you gave Jesus that we could be saved and redeemed. And we pray this morning, Lord, that out of this passage of Scripture, you'll enlighten us, you'll thrill us, and Lord, you'll encourage us and equip us to join you in the great work that you've been doing. And we pray this all for the glory of Jesus. Amen. I set aside a morning to just get into this this passage of Scripture. It's one which we all know, I guess it's the most famous conversion there's ever been. Yes? Often people talk about their Damascus Road experience. They haven't got a clue what they're talking about when you actually read it in the Scriptures, have they? But this is the most famous uh, conversion in the Scriptures. And early in the morning I was having my own devotional time and I was, I, I, as many of you know me know, I, I read at least one psalm a morning. I love the psalms. I love the honesty and the down-to-earthness of the psalms. And I was in Psalm 25 and I read this. No one whose hope is in you will ever be put to shame. And it just reminded me that I live a shameful life. Um, like Matt was obviously has got a past that now that's dealt with, but, and he's glad of that. I also had a past, particularly my early teenage years. I got into things when, when I look back, they, they were shameful. Um, I was I deeply regretted it. I'm not going to go through the details. I was brought up in the what's called the Teddy Boy era. And it wasn't just drain pipes and blue suede shoes. It, there was a lot of vileness. There was a lot of, um, yeah, there, were, uh, there was a lot of things done. There was a, 
a, a, a lot of, there was danger. And so I was part of a, it wasn't so much a gang, but it was a crowd of us. And I was very much in, in it all that took place. And then, suddenly, I'll be about 14, this, this, this lot who I thought were my friends turned against me. I got beaten up several times, I got sexually abused. And I, I'd not done anything. And why was it? But you see, you, you can look back and see the sovereignty of God in things. And I saw how God sovereignly got me out of that, even though I was perplexed at the time. And so I was beginning to thank God for his sovereignty. And then I remember how that I was picked up by a couple of older people, older people, people in their probably 30s who were very good tennis players. And they took me under their wing and I began to play tennis and play competition tennis. And that was my life for many years. And I, I didn't get saved during that time, but it got me into another way of life. And I often just thank God for people like Bob Flanders and Frank Sims. They were good tennis players. They were never saved. But they were, they were part of God's sovereign plan for my life. And then when I left school at 18, I joined the Prudential Assurance Company, worked on a, a law department there. Sue was there as a secretary. I met Sue. And um, somehow went to a Christian union meeting. It wasn't my intention to go to a Christian union meeting. But as you know, I get lost. And I turned up at this meeting instead of what I thought was a, a staff union meeting. And there I heard the gospel for the first time. And it was an old lady that had just come back from Africa. Well, she looked old. She was probably a lot younger than I am now. Um, but she looked old. She was a missionary and she'd, she was dressed in black with a pale face and a sort of flower pot on her head. Um, that was what she looked like. I was 19 and she talked about intimacy with Jesus. I knew something about intimacy but not the sort of intimacy she was talking about. And it got me. It bugged me. So what did I do? I bought a New Testament. And it was the Acts of the Apostles, strangely enough. I read Luke. It's Gospel, then read the Acts. And do you know what I saw in the Acts? I saw the church. I saw the church. Now, I've been to church. My mum said, go to church, get confirmed, then you'd have to go again. So that's what I did. I got confirmed, so, I, so, so as far as my mum was concerned, he's all right now, so I didn't have to go anymore. All of a sudden, I saw church, and I thought, wow, people died for this. People, people gave themselves for this. Where is it? And I look back then and think, that was even before I met Jesus. And then about six months later, I went to quite a few meetings. Love to hear some of the preachers. And one Saturday night, went to a meeting, and uh, there, I gave my heart to Jesus. I gave my life to Jesus. Actually, he got hold of me. That's the truth of it. He, he got, he got um, hold, hold of me. I was uh, 19, 20 years of age. Sue and I were married at, uh, um, at 21. And so, that morning, I was just full of uh, thankfulness. I was just thankful for God, His sovereignty, even though I went through some crummy experiences. Some, some of those, God had to later address and deliver me from some of the effects of that. Um, but I was thankful for my conversion. But when I read some, some hours later, the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, 
his encounter was very different from mine. And in fact, the sort of testimony that he had is very different from most of the testimonies that we hear when people talk of their conversion. What was, what was Saul? He was a, what would be a word that would sum up his life? I think the word zeal. He was a zealous man. He was a Pharisee. He was full of passion for the God of Israel. Make no mistake about that. This man was passionate for the God of Israel. This was the, this was the God that he worshipped and he longed for this God to free his people. Freedom was his passion. Although a Roman citizen himself, he hated the idolatry of Rome and, and, and all that went with Caesar. If he brought up in the law of Moses, the Torah. His testimony was this, as to the Torah, the law, blameless. Wow, what a thing to say. Every jot and tittle of the law, he kept blameless. He would say his prayers three times a day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He was a man where there was no compromise. He was a loyalist. No compromise, acceptable. He was immersed in the history of Israel. His heroes were David, Abraham, Joseph, the Maccabean movement. He was steeped in it. But he realised Israel had failed to serve the purposes of God because they had failed to glorify God. Later, he was to write, as he wrote to the Roman church, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's a shocking thing to say to a Jew because they would say, well, I'm in Abraham. Paul would say, no, actually, you're in Adam. You failed to glorify God. And he's, he's shortly coming to meet the one true Israelite who did glorify God. He said, now Israel went into exile, into Babylon. But as far as Paul was concerned, Israel was still in exile, despite the temple, despite the land, despite the Torah. So he is, he is zealous. How does he see himself? I think he sees himself like Phineas. Remember Phineas? There in the Old Testament. He took a spear and killed an Israelite who was having sex with a Moabite woman. And it says in the scriptures, it was counted to him as righteousness. He saw himself as Elijah, killing the prophets of of Baal. He was, he was brought up as a Pharisee, trained under Gamaliel. But unlike Gamaliel, Gamaliel was one of those live and let live sort of Pharisees. No, he'd been brought up under, under a more radical Pharisee, Shammai, who said this, the, these who were zealous for God and Torah would have to sh- say their prayers and sharpen their swords and get ready for action. And that was Paul like the Maccabees 150 years before. He was a radical Pharisee. That's why I believe Luke introduces him here as Saul of Tarsus who's given his approval and consent uh, to the killing of Stephen. And if you can just imagine, he is intent as he travels to Damascus 
to serve the God he loves and worships. He will wipe out from the face of the earth this blasphemous sect of the crucified Nazarene. No one can possibly believe a crucified, cursed criminal could be Israel's Messiah. And he's got authority, folks. I think sometimes we just see Saul as the one who was there consenting to the death of Stephen. But it was much, much more than that. This man was hell-bent on destroying this sect called the Way. And he had powerful documents to commit to prison, or even worse, the followers of Jesus. As he travels, you can just imagine, what's he doing? He's praying. He's planning. He's worshipping. He brings scriptures to mind. I think this scripture, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, was, was, was a scripture that would live with him. Then there's this blinding light. He knows at that moment he is encountering the God he loves and worships and prays to. When you have an experience like that, some of you have. Some of you go back to Toronto. Some of us had amazing experiences with the risen Lord Jesus. But we knew we were encountering God. I believe he knew, wow, he is encountering God, the God that he serves at this moment. And we can't imagine the shock when he realises this encounter with Israel's God is the person of Jesus of Nazareth, his Messiah. Now, I don't think I put that very well, so I'm going to read you something from M.T. Wright's biography of Paul. I would recommend it to you. And this is what he says. To understand the explosion that resulted, we need history. We need theology. We need a strong sense of the inner tensions of the first century Jewish world and the zealous propagators of Jewish culture. This moment shattered Saul's wildest dreams and at the same split second fulfilled them. This was, he saw it in that instant, the fulfilment of Israel's ancient scriptures, but also the utter denial of the way he had been reading them up to that point. God the Creator had raised Jesus from the dead, declaring not only that he really was Israel's Messiah, but that he had done what the one God had promised to do himself in person. Saul had been absolutely right in his devotion to the one God, but absolutely wrong in his understanding of who that one God was and how his purposes would be fulfilled. He'd been absolutely right in his devotion to Israel and the Torah, but absolutely wrong in his view of Israel's vocation and identity and even in the meaning of the Torah itself. His lifelong loyalty was utterly right, but utterly misdirected. He had a zeal for God, but had not understood what the one God was up to. Everything was now focused on the figure from whom there streamed a blinding light, the figure who now addressed Saul as a master addresses a slave. The figure he recognised as the crucified Jesus of Nazareth. Heaven and earth came together in this figure and he was commanding Saul to acknowledge this fact and to reorientate his life accordingly. I, I just underline those words, reorientate his life accordingly. That's conversion. That's conversion. And this passage... I enjoyed that study. 
because it just brought home to me so clearly to orientate his life accordingly. So Paul is led to Damascus. He's blind for three days. No food. No, no water. That, that, that was, that's about as long as I think you can go, isn't it? Not much further than that. He had a vision of Ananias coming to him. Ananias obviously had his struggles. This Saul is infamous. But he goes, brother Saul. Hey, Saul, you're now family. It's amazing. You're now family. He's now your brother. He's your family. This, this new family of God, he's a chosen vessel. He's going to the Gentiles. Folks, he will suffer much for my name. I wish we had time to go through all the things that, that Saul went through. He went into obscurity after this for probably about eight or nine years. All we know of that time is he lost all things. He was beaten up many times. And then you read, you read 2 Corinthians and all the stuff that he goes through. and Probably a nervous breakdown, physical breakdown. This, this guy suffered for Jesus. It was part of his calling. He will suffer much. I don't think Ananias actually said that to him. That that was the call. And as Ananias obeys, Saul is healed, filled with the Holy Spirit, baptized in water, and declares this Jesus as the Messiah, the long-awaited kingdom of God, has come in Jesus. That's conversion. (laughs) And Saul's conversion is different from what is preached from many pulpits, sadly, evangelical pulpits across this land. It's not exactly hands up for Jesus stuff, is it? No, really, I'm serious. It's not exactly, who wants to be a Christian? Put your hands up for Jesus. This is not exactly. I'm not saying there's no place for that. I'm just saying when you put it in in this context, Now, for Paul, this is what it was. A change of ownership. He's been bought with a price. He's been redeemed. He now says, I belong to another. My body is not my own. Wow. That will get you into trouble. In his baptism, he says, I have died with Christ and I'm raised with him. I was dead, yet now I'm alive. My old life is gone. Saul of Tarsus is dead. That's conversion. Nothing's the same. Soon he's having to be lowered down the city wall in a basket to escape being killed. The one who hunted others is now the most hunted man in Damascus. As I read it, I found this very challenging because I've got to be honest, I thought, huh, that's, that's, everybody knows about Paul's conversion. Everybody, it's, it's old hat. But as I read it, I felt so challenged. I want to share some things. What have I got? Wow, I've got 24 minutes. Is that right, Alan? Are we? No? It's 25, okay. Yeah. I want to, I want, want to try and answer three questions. Because I think, this, this is, the challenges that come to all of us. Oh, I hope they were this morning. 
What is the true gospel of Jesus? Do we preach or share this, this gospel? Do we, do we preach and teach a change of ownership? Paul now addresses himself as a slave, as a servant. The word doulos is, is a slave, one that is sold to a master. Or do we present a Jesus who is pleading with sinners to please repent? I heard someone preach once that if, if God has a need, it's this. He needs a family. God needs nothing. <laughs> he doesn't need you and I. It's sheer grace. He doesn't need anything. He never needed anything. He doesn't need a family. It's sheer grace. He didn't need Paul or Saul. It was sheer grace. When that hits you, it causes you to just want to worship more and more. That, that, that is my experience most mornings as I get up and read these psalms. I just want to worship this one who doesn't need me. Good boy, do I need him. I know you'd say amen to that one. He doesn't need me or you. He doesn't need his church. It says he loved him and he gave himself for his church. Not just for the world, but for his church, that he might present her holy and blameless to God. Wow, what a calling we have! Who wouldn't give themselves to this Jesus? But sadly, the gospel that is often preached is not that. That's not the gospel. I guess Paul would call it another gospel, like he did when he wrote to the Galatians, and he wrote a very rude letter to the Galatians. Or do we present a Jesus? who invites us to a kingdom banquet. To a kingdom banquet. And a life of service which involves suffering and engaging in warfare. That's what Paul was invited to. To a family, but suffering and warfare. And you only need to read the book of Ephesians. And and he opens it all up there. That we are in a battle. It's a real battle. Secondly, it challenges every aspect of our lives. Our priorities, our vocation, how we spend our time, how we spend our money, how we use our gifts. And I'm I'm, I'm not just talking about what we call spiritual gifts. I'm talking about everything that we're gifted in. I don't know about you, I pray a lot for healing. I'm thrilled when people get healed. There's a lot of people that Sue and I pray for who are under some wonderful medical attention at the moment, which is, which is saving their lives because God gave gifts. And those gifts are being used for humankind. They're gifts from God. I thank God for medics and, and scientific research. Now, there are those that abuse those gifts, but they will, they will account for that one day. So, so God, God has given us, has given us gifts. How do we use? I, I regret that we are not able to stay on for a couple of days, not to be with you, but to be at Chesley Street and not with the church in Chesley Street but to be at the cricket. I I have my doubts as to whether the weather will hold, but if I was going to be here, I would pray for the weather. I would, like Bede did, and change the weather, one of your saints. But it's the World Cup time, isn't it? Have you enjoyed it? Who's watching the cricket? 
Oh, you do need a sportsman in your leadership. You really do. Oh, I, oh I, Lord, you have not answered my prayers. So I'm going to tell you about one of my heroes. One of the household names in the, the turn of the 20th century was a famous cricketer called C.T. Studd. He played in that team with W.G. Grace. And he was born with a silver spoon in his mouth. His father had made a fortune in India. He'd come back, he had racehorses. And he had a friend who, uh, uh, they used to meet up once a month. And what they would do with this, his, his father's friend would choose the restaurant or choose the theatre and they would go together. And his friend one night went to a theatre and he met Deal Moody. Moody was there speaking. He's an American evangelist, a businessman evangelist. And he was wonderfully saved under Moody's ministry. So when he came to Stud's, to Stud's father, he said, I'll tell you what, you choose the restaurant tonight. I have got the theatre for us. And of course he took him to hear Moody and he got wonderfully saved. Stud had three sons, all great cricketers, all played for Eton, all played for Cambridge University and, and, and CT played for England. I can't remember whether any of the others did or not. But his, his ambition was to get his sons saved. And he did. He, he did that within about two years and then he died. And, and CT Stud was... If you look through the averages, he was uh, top of the averages in batting. He was top of the averages in bowling. He was the Botham of his day, or the Freddie Flintoff of his day. Whoever your cricketing hero was, he was in, in their day. He played for the English team against Australia. We always thrashed the Aussies in those days. And the England captain got a little arrogant and decided, we'll have a bit of fun with the Aussies. Let's reverse the batting order. Well, they came unstuck. And the Aussies were having a field day. It was the first time they won against England. So what did they do? They took the bales and, 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 and they burnt them and they reduced them to ashes. This was the burial of English cricket. They put them in a little urn and that's what they're playing for later on this year. And you couldn't buy the ashes if you had all the money in the world. Just a little urn. That's where it all comes from there. And so the next year... We are going to put out the best English team we can and we've got stud. Oh no, you haven't, he said. Because I'm going to China. He'd been converted. He'd also heard D.L. Moody. And he'd signed up with Hudson Taylor and the, and, and the China in their mission. And England, they say, you can't! England needs you! China needs me more. And he went to China. And he married Priscilla. I think she was Irish or Scots. She was fiery. She was a Salvation Army lass. And together they began to serve God. Interestingly, when they made their marriage vows in China, they said this to one another. We covenant with one another. We will never hinder one another from serving the purposes of God. And that was to have some significance down the road. He, he went to China. He went to India. And he came back. He was 54 years of age. And he was virtually dead. And he, he, he knew that his life was coming to an end. Uh, but he saw an, an, an advertisement for a lecture. can't remember the guy's name now. But it was entitled, Cannibals Need Missionaries in Sudan. Now, you can take that in several different ways. But he was intrigued 
This is absolutely true. But he was intrigued and he went to that lecture and he heard everybody's going to the Sudan. Big game hunters, explorers, scientists, all sorts of people, but no one is going with the gospel. And Stud said to God, why is no one going? He said, you go. Be careful when you ask God a question. You go. He said, I'm dead. He said, I am the great physician. So he went before a panel of his peers because he needed money. And they said, you're as good as dead. We are not going to finance you. But he believed God and him and his young son-in-law set off from Liverpool in a boat. His wife couldn't go because she was too sick. She had to stay at home. And as they departed, the Lord said to him, you're not just going for Sudan, you are going for the nations. And as he departed, his wife was wonderfully healed. For 17 years, they saw one another three weeks over 17 years. They kept their vow. He worked in the Sudan. WEC, Worldwide Evangelization Crusade, came out of that. And an amazing, amazing couple. He said this, and I saw this before I was saved, when I was beginning to visit Sue, on her mantelpiece was this. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Jesus will last. That was conversion. Folks, we all got heroes, but can I say this? There are no heroes. There's Jesus. There's no heroes. We could say, well, Paul's a hero. No, he's not. He's just an ordinary man who got saved. Very ordinary, and, but also very brilliant. But that doesn't matter. He got his gifts like you and I. We don't have heroes. We have a hero and we belong to him. I found this so challenging. Thirdly, and this is what I finish with, it challenges us to obey scripture. We have to be very careful in this day of uh, political correctness and you know, not quite sure about things. We have to be careful we don't pay lip service to Scripture. When I got saved that night um, in Hoban Viaduct, a guy called Tom Reese was preaching. He was um, England's version of Billy Graham in those days. Lovely Anglican pastor. Uh, I responded to an appeal and uh, I went up to the front. I'd given my life to Jesus. And uh, so they gave me uh, St. John's Gospel. Well, they didn't give me the whole thing, I don't know, but there we go. They didn't. St. John's Gospel told me to say my prayers and find a church. That was discipleship in those days. That Repentance didn't come into it. But I, I knew something had happened. I remember going home and my mother saying, you're late tonight. And I said, yeah, I'll become a Christian. She said, don't be so be-daft. We brought you up as a Christian. You were confirmed. That's what she said. But I knew something had happened. The next morning I was to discover what had actually happened because I was going to work on Monday morning to Hoban Viaduct and I used to go from Crystal Palace or Gypsy Hill Station to Hoban Viaduct which was probably about a dozen stops. And I used to work a little scam. I know you find this hard to believe of me but I used to work a little scam. So what I'd do, I'd, I'd, I'd wait until the train was just coming into the station and in those days you didn't have turnstiles. You couldn't do it today. So what I'd do, I used to know the guy was on the, on, the, on, the, on the gate, and I'd run to him and say, John, I'm late, I'll get a ticket the other end. And I did, 
But I only ever got it from the Elephant Castle, which was two stops away. So I saved myself a lot of money. I never felt any guilt about it. I felt it was smart. So I got saved Saturday night. And Monday morning, I'm waiting. And you think, those legs, surely they're not that good. They were good in those days. I waited. The train came in. John, I'll get a ticket the other end. Got up to the elephant. Got, got up there to home Viaduct. Paid from the elephant. About a hundred yards up Hoban Viaduct. I heard that voice again. The voice that said, "Why don't you come on in on Saturday night?" Said to me, "We don't live that way anymore." I turned around, went back, sought out the railway authorities, uh, gave a statement to the railway police. That's all I've been doing for 18 months. And two months later, went before a judge in, uh, or a magistrate uh, in London and pleaded guilty, was fined 40 shillings, which is two pounds, and 40 shillings uh, costs. But the judge was a little, or the magistrate, who was a judge actually, was a little intrigued. What, sort of, what is the evidence against Mr. Lowe? I mean, and the railway policeman said, my lad, he had a religious experience and confessed. I'm so grateful for that religious experience. It turned me around. I am not perfect, you know that. If God wanted perfection, I would be in glory. God doesn't want perfection, he wants relationship. He doesn't want performance, although he wants us to live lives pleasing to him. So as I read this passage and later preached on it like I have this morning, I just felt wow, I just need to take stock again that this conversion that I had actually matches what is biblical conversion because if there's one thing we want in this day and that you want in this church is authentic Christian faith and practice. Is that not right? Is that not right? So, so I hope I've challenged you this morning I hope also if there's anybody here who has not come yet to that place of faith in Jesus, not just said, Jesus, I want in. And I hope this morning that has helped you. But let me tell you this. He's not pleading with you. He's inviting you, but on his terms. And they're the best terms you'll ever get. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We love your scriptures. We love the honesty. But we love the power that backs it. That you never, ever break promises, Lord, because you're different from us. Lord Jesus, you promised us salvation in believing and following your Son. And we thank you for that salvation, Lord Jesus. We also thank you, Lord, that you've called us to be co-partners with you in the work that you're doing in these days. And Lord, even as our younger friends and some dubious adults are going to Bosnia, we pray, Lord, they may do the works that you've prepared before the foundation of them, of the world to walk in. And we pray that for all of us, Lord, and for this church especially as this next season progresses. We pray, Lord, that we might present a Jesus who is worthy, wonderfully worthy of all our praise and all our worship. Amen.
Now, Alan, I make it 5 to 12. You may have it otherwise, but it's going in my diary as another miracle. <laughs> Thanks very much. Where's he gone? You get a round of applause because you finished early. Yeah, yeah. Even better. Even better. Let's stand and let's celebrate the goodness of God at work among us and take hold of that challenge that Ray has thrown out there because I believe God has got a new chapter for us as a community. I believe that Matt coming into fellowship is just part of that. But there is much more to come.